0: me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for your mercy and grace and for your kindness to your church in making provision for us in uh, gifts and uh, abilities and the work of your spirit among every member and for supplying it with uh, ministers and elders and uh, uh, supplying it with every joint. We pray that you would uh, bless our congregation this day, that you would bless this time of study in particular, that we might learn uh, from your deeds of old and and the history of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to look at an educated ministry and the founding of Princeton Seminary, uh, which I don't know if that sounds like an exciting title to you or not, but uh, I hope not only to talk about the founding of Princeton Seminary, which will be rather significant for the history of Presbyterianism in America, hence why including it, but also digging down into the lives of some of uh, the men connected with it, uh, which might be a little more interesting for you, because it's always nice to get into the concrete details of of people's lives uh, in these events, but first, let's, uh, uh, let me read a passage of Scripture in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. Here, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, another minister of the gospel he had raised up and had uh, left uh, to, to minister and to set things in order. <clears throat> and so, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, "'You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus.'" And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In these pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, uh, Paul often makes the point that he had this deposit that was entrusted to him, namely the gospel, uh, the, the, the faith, the doctrine. That was his charge as a minister to preach it, to teach it. He had entrusted this also to Timothy, that he would be a faithful steward of this task, to guard it, to preach it, to teach it. And now he's charging Timothy to raise up other faithful men who would do the same, who would teach others, to raise up teachers for the church, to raise up preachers for the church. We could go to other passages as well, verse 15 in the same passage he exhorts Timothy do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth uh, the word of truth is perfect it is infallible it is not foolproof uh, God's word in the hand of, of a fool or if one who does not know how to rightly handle it can misuse it and we'll see a bit of that in, in American history It's important that he would be an approved workman uh, with no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There was a need uh, that people began to feel for some change and improvement in the way ministers were raised, uh, that this task that Paul exhorts Timothy to uh, was still the work that the church had to be doing in the early 1800s, in the United States of America, um, there was several reasons why they eventually started Princeton Seminary for this work. Um, there were some who didn't think it was necessary, especially outside the Presbyterian Church, but even in the Cumberland Presbyterians that I mentioned last week, who thought maybe it's not that important that ministers be all that educated. We could lower both the educational and the doctrinal standards for the ministry. Uh, but the reasons they would do so, partially is because just kind of a, in the currents of that day, both among evangelicals, but also among the skeptics and deists, is kind of just a suspicion of trained ministers, really trained officials in general, kind of part of the democrat, uh, democratic ethos of the, you know, more uh, 18, uh, 1800s uh, that was beginning to be popular. But also, there was a real need for ministers. And uh, there were different strategies than how to meet that need. Do we lower the bar? Certainly the Baptists and the Methodists are just sending anyone who feels the urge out there, and they're certainly g- uh, gaining a lot of members as a consequence. Maybe we should do that. Um, the alternative was, well, maybe let's get better at training more ministers well and, and get more of them out there in the field, with, but without lowering our standards. In fact, with so many errors now arising, you got Unitarianism in New England, you got a rise in Arminianism, you got a rise in all sorts of interesting and weird ideas. Uh, we even, if anything, need more educated or more confessionally trained Presbyterian ministers in the midst of such challenges. So, first of all, there was an increase in population and churches, both because America was growing. America was spreading out, and with the revivals, even, you know, more church members and a shortage of ministers to meet the need. Secondly, at the same time, the colleges that had been training ministers, a smaller and smaller percentage of those graduates were going into the ministry, and along with that, ministerial training at places like Princeton and Yale, Uh, were becoming a little more marginalized, a little less attention given to them because it was a smaller percentage of why people were going to college. Uh, Thirdly, there was a apparent inability for the current method to keep up with demand. The common practice had been for a man to get his college education and then to do further private theological studies under another minister or professor uh, to be tutored, Uh, but this was falling behind. It was... Also lacking consistency in quality. Sometimes that worked real real well. Sometimes maybe not quite so much. And then especially with the shifts in the college that they could take less for granted as far as what they already had from college. The seminary would still follow the same basic model that they would go to college and then get additional training for pastoral ministry. Uh, but it would be more centralized with approved professors devoted to that work, with greater resources. Uh, we take it for granted that we have so many online resources today, uh, but finding a, a good library you know, was not something that you could easily take for granted. Uh, the professors would uh, continue to both teach and mentor their students. They didn't want to, to avoid an attention to personal development and piety at the same time. Uh, it was an institution devoted to training ministers. Um, it was not uh, simply to issue degrees. Um, it was a ministerial training institute. In fact, instead of getting a degree, after you pass the final exam at the end of three years, they would receive a certificate from the board and from the professors with which they shall be remitted to their several presbyteries to be disposed of as such presbyteries shall direct. So it was intended to train Ministers to send them out to their presbyteries with the certificate that they completed this course of study, usually three years in length, at the seminary. That—that's what would take place when Princeton was founded. Uh, A a fourth reason why it was founded is that uh, there wasn't an institution for ministerial training committed to confessional Presbyterianism. Princeton College was heavily dominated by. Presbyterians, but it was not run by the Presbyterian Church, nor were the professors committed to teach uh, strictly in accord with the Westminster Standards. Uh, The Congregationalists, which had united in missions work out west with the Presbyterians, were like-minded in a lot of ways, but were not committed to Presbyterian distinctives and were looser in their commitment to the Westminster Standards, and that would become more evident over time. On the other hand, the Congregationalists had set up a kind of an example that the Presbyterians would follow. At Harvard University, there was controversy uh, when around 1807, the chair of theology, the professor of theology there, um, a new one was appointed who was a Unitarian. And that had been opposed, but the Orthodox party lost. And so the Congregationalists, uh, who were of an Orthodox variety, set up Andover Seminary, Uh, to be this separate institution for the training of ministers. Now, fortunately, Princeton College was not as bad as Harvard. Um, It was still orthodox. But there were doubts to whether it could successfully ensure a steady stream of Presbyterian, doctrinally orthodox, and able ministers. Its campus culture was not very great the first decade of the 1800s. And so all these needs began to be discussed at the General Assembly, uh, several important sermons were given there by Asheville Green and Archibald Alexander. Uh, they had evaluated several different plans, one centrally located seminary, two seminaries, one for each senate, um, but they be- began with simply establishing one seminary of the Presbyterian Church in a central location. And In 1812, they voted to locate it at Princeton to elect its board of directors to choose its first professor, Archibald Alexander. And so it began later that year. It began in Archibald Alexander's new home in Princeton uh, with him as the professor and three students meeting in his house. Uh, Kind of rather humble beginnings. But for over a hundred years, it would be uh, a bulwark of Presbyterian orthodoxy, of even evangelical orthodoxy and later inerrancy debates and things of that sort, of missions, sending out missions to foreign lands. Actually, rather quickly, as early as 1820s, one of their graduates was sending back to uh, what was described by the natives of, of Hawaii, the chief of Princeton Seminary, uh, Archibald Alexander, a-, a cane made out of uh, a carved, I think, whalebone or something like that, that there were already missionaries at work from Princeton in Hawaii by the 1820s. At the same time, um, Ashbel Green became president of Princeton College, seeking to renew it and to work together with the seminary. Both Alexander and Green had been uh, pastors in Philadelphia uh, just before that. So Princeton Seminary founded 1812. Right as America's going into the War of 1812, um, just two years after the Cumberland Presbyterians split off, um, in the midst of the Second Great Awakening, Uh, They establish Princeton Seminary. Um, Any questions at this point before I dig into some of the people involved uh, in in Princeton Seminary? All right. So let's look at three men in particular, although we'll also kind of look at their families. Uh, The first is named Archibald, uh, one of several Archibalds you'd come across in Presbyterian history. Uh, He's... Scott's Irish grandfather arrived from Northern Ireland in America in 1736. He was born in Western Virginia, outside Lexington, Virginia, in 1772 in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, Shortly after that, uh, Princeton College grad William Graham moved to Lexington, would become his pastor and teacher. In 1788, he became a private tutor, Archibald Alexander became a private tutor tutor in Fredericksburg Virginia and it's actually conversations there with several people um, such as one older woman that he she asked him to read uh, some of these Puritan books to her and discussions with others who had been uh, awakened by revivals caused him to have a, a spiritual awakening and he didn't have assurance right away he went a lot, through a lot of ups and downs where he wasn't sure he was saved was I really convicted of my sins enough to be saved um, but later on, he would look back at that time as the time that he was converted. The next year, he traveled with his pastor, William Graham, to Hampton-Sydney College and the revivals that we discussed last time uh, there. And that's where uh, he was continued to have doubts and struggles and awakenings and ups and downs. Uh, one helpful pastor pointed out that you don't really need to have, like, uh, a certain level of conviction of your sins, the conviction of your sins, is there to drive you to Christ. I mean you should be convicted of your sins, but it 's not like you need to be convicted five or ten or you know some level. Uh, you definitely realize that you need christ that 's the point of the convictions to, to seek forgiveness of your sins uh, in him. Uh, put your faith in Jesus Christ um, and there were other discussions around that time, but at, by the end of the year, he made his profession of faith. The next year, he began studying for the ministry under Graham at Liberty Hall, uh, later called Washington and Lee University. And then the next year, surprisingly, and he, looking back, he wasn't sure this was a great idea, but he was already a ruling elder and was sent to General Assembly. But of course, it did mean he got to meet a lot of people there. He was licensed to preach that year. And then for the next three years or so, he served as an itinerant preacher in Virginia. Uh, so he's, you know, early... 20s. He's preaching 132 sermons in the next 15 months, sometimes two hours or more in length. Uh, One historian says for for three years he was continually traveling, often preaching to little groups of six or eight, and sometimes to large gatherings of hundreds, Uh, and uh, was where he gained a lot of this experience preaching extemporaneously uh, throughout Virginia. Then he was ordained in 1794, became the pastor of several churches that were close to each other, somewhat. And then 1797, uh, he became the president of Hampton-Sydney College at the age of 24. Uh, and so, while remaining pastor of these several churches. Uh, so quite, quite the uh, accomplishments. He married Jeanetta Waddle, daughter of James Waddle, who was a minister who had actually been called to ministry by Samuel Davies, Uh, kind of a Calvin and Pharrell experience where he was traveling to be a teacher in South Carolina and Samuel Davies said, you need to become a minister and stay here in Virginia. And he did. His daughter married Archibald Alexander. Then 1807, Archibald goes to become pastor of Pine Street Church, or Third Presbyterian, in Philadelphia. Then in 1812, he becomes professor at Princeton Seminary with all that experience. And uh, he... Remains professor there from 1812 to 1851 when he died. Uh, Continued serving as professor until the age of 79 uh, when he died at home with his family at Princeton, having served as a professor to the end. He had struggled with his health in middle age and then his older age was actually better, you know, relatively speaking. And so in, in a sense, he had a very long an extended and active old age that caused him to actually reflect a lot on that, having expected to have died sooner um, and yet end up living uh, to almost 80. <clears throat> he, had, he and his wife had six sons and a daughter, and all followed the faith of their fathers. Uh, J.W. Alexander was a professor and pastor in New York City, uh, William Cooper Alexander became a state senator in New Jersey. Joseph Addison Alexander became a professor at Princeton Seminary and Bible commentator. Samuel Davies Alexander, he's naming these sons after others, uh, became a pastor in New York City. His son, J.W. Alexander, wrote his biography, and this is what he says about their home life, just a little bit about what he says about what it was like to grow up as the son of Archibald Alexander. He says of his father, He was addicted to sacred music, as both he and Mrs. Alexander were gifted with clear and pleasing voices. The hours of family intercourse was enlivened by many a psalm and sacred song. Later on, he says, Nothing more characterized him than his fondness for communicating instruction on every subject, even the most elementary, within his reach. It might be the alphabet, or Hebrew and Syriac grammar, or geometry and surveying, in which he was fully versed, or metaphysics. He was unwearied and delighted. If only he had willing learners, and he had the art of making every learner willing. Uh, Later on, he says, before dismissing the matter of family training, we ought to mention his constant and animated conversations with his children. It was a solace at home, and by the way, Without the slightest appearance of a plan, but with an easy and spontaneous flow, he was, during some hours of every day, pouring forth a stream of useful information on all subjects, but chiefly on religion. The whole wealth of his extended reading and observation seemed at one time or another to be distilled in these familiar interviews. Uh, and so you get the idea of one who's, who's always learning, uh, who's always also seeking to teach, whether it's his children at home, uh, the students that came to his seminary, uh, and continued in that work uh, until he died. His colleague was a man, in many ways, rather different. For a while, there were two professors. The next year, he was joined by uh, Samuel Miller. Uh, Samuel's grandfather had arrived from Scotland in Boston, so he came from the north, uh, This grandfather married a pilgrim descendant, uh, I think a descendant of John Alden, but I could be wrong. Uh, Samuel Miller's father had been commissioned by Old South Church uh, to go to Delaware, become a Presbyterian minister there, and so that's where Samuel Miller grew up, the eighth child of his parents. Uh, He made his profession of faith in 1788 and began studies at the University of Philadelphia, uh, he had been homeschooled until then, uh, schooled by his father and brothers, older brothers, and first time he entered a school was, was at the university, and he graduated the next year. Sounds like he was, was pretty good at his studies. Um, then, with encouragement from his parents and Asheville Green, his pastor, he began studying theology under his father. Uh, he was licensed to preach in 1791, uh, studied some more. Uh, in 93, he was ordained and installed as an associate pastor for the Unified Presbyterian Congregations in New York City. For a while, they had kind of a multi-campus approach to the Presbyterian churches in New York City, where you had one session and pastoral staff that would oversee several churches, although that would eventually be broken up. But that's where he was a pastor from 1793 until he became a Princeton professor in 18. 18- 13. Um, while he was there, in response to aggressive polemics from the Episcopalians, the ones in the north tended to be especially aggressive, arguing that unless you were Episcopalian, you really didn't have a church. You know, you really need ordination from a bishop to, to be a real church. And so he began to, to write in defense of the validity of Presbyterian church government. Um, and you get the idea even from the titles of his books, that this is a very distinguished, eloquent, well-read, urbane uh, man who's who's, uh, very polished. Uh, You know, the letters, his book is called Letters Concerning the Constitution and Order of the Christian Ministry as Deduced from Scripture and Primitive Usage. He had a sequel come out two years later. Um, He also had a special interest in the importance of ruling elders, that they are divinely appointed ordinance and have certain qualifications and duties. Uh, So he became, naturally, the professor of church history or ecclesiastical history and church government. So he and Archibald Alexander were were different in many ways, different temperaments, different preaching styles, different backgrounds, but they worked very well together uh, uh, until they both died, both serving as professors up into their old age, Samuel Miller died at home at the age of 80, uh, serving as professor until then, 1850. Uh, they only died a year apart from each other. Uh, and that, the fact that they worked well together uh, really led to unity in the Presbyterian seminary and uh, broadly in the church as well. Uh, some of his topics, though, were on pastoral manners and habits. He wrote a book on that, wrote a book on the ruling elder, which is still uh, well-regarded today. One on Presbyterianism, which has been republished more recently. Uh, One on infant baptism. Uh, And then one on public prayer, thoughts on public prayer. Uh, And so worship and church history and church government were more his uh, areas of of focus. (laughs) Lastly, uh, is Charles Hodge. He would be the third professor of uh, Princeton Seminary, and really he saw Archibald Alexander as like a second father to him, because his own father died when he was quite young, I think about six months old. Um, like these others, his his grandfather was, was Scots-Irish from uh, Northern Ireland, arrived in 1730s, and he, he arrived in Philadelphia. So he was from Uh, the Middle Colonies. And Charles Hodge was born in Philadelphia in 1797 um, to Hugh and Mary Hodge. Uh, His mother had actually moved from Boston of French Huguenot descent. Um, He was born just two years after John Witherspoon died. Um, Later, J. Gresham Machen would be born Sorry, three years after. He would be born three years after Charles Hodge died, and R.C. Sproul would be born two years after Machen died. You know, if you just see the, the continuity of how we're actually not that far away from this history, R.C. Sproul just died uh, in 2017. Uh, but anyway, Charles' father was a doctor who fought yellow fever, but then died of it as well. In 1812, Charles' mother and brother and himself moved to Princeton for their education, uh, their pastor, Bill Green, also moved there at the same time and became his college professor. And in 1815, uh, there was a revival on campus. Um, well, he had been believing and pious uh, from a very early age, as he describes it. The outbreak of revival on campus caused him to reevaluate his faith, and he found that it was indeed genuine and was one of the first that year who professed his faith. That year, 1815, would see one-third of the Princeton College students make professions of faith um, and uh, would, would sweep through the campus. And the seminary professors and students would assist in, in counseling many students at that time. In 1816, Charles entered Princeton Seminary, uh, graduating and licensed in 1819, ordained in eighteen. 18- twenty uh, one then the next year elected professor of oriental and biblical literature at the seminary Oriental here does not refer to Chinese or Japanese refers to like Hebrew for example um, and he also very quickly after he was elected professor married his what you could call a high school sweetheart although i don 't think they went to high school but uh, his his longtime uh, companion and friend, Sarah. They had known each other since they were both about 14. She was a great-granddaughter of Ben Franklin, was very learned as well, and, and godly, and beautiful, and they would have eight children. Um, their first child, born the next year or so, was named Archibald Alexander Hodge, after uh, Archibald Alexander. Um, he founded a journal in 1825, would become very important, commenting on current controversies. He studied for a few years in Germany to better engage the threat of higher criticism um, and uh, continued as professor until he died at the age of 80 in uh, 1878. Uh, He wrote books, a variety of things. He wrote Bible commentaries. His commentary on Romans, for example, would be very popular. He wrote a history of the Colonial Presbyterian Church that I was actually even using for that period of church history. Uh, He wrote practical books like The Way of Life. Uh, He wrote a three-volume systematic theology that would be published in 1874, or sorry, 73. Um, One thing about that book is that if you start reading it, he'll just occasionally quote people in other languages and not translate it. (laughs) Because, you know... People who studied in college and the like were kind of expected to know Greek and Latin and German and other things. And so that's one unique feature of that book. But it doesn't get too much in the way because usually you can understand what, what he's talking about from the context. Uh, still a helpful systematic theology. The last year he wrote, his, I believe, his final book on Darwinism, against Darwinism. What is Darwinism? Uh, and like I said, died at the age of 80. He was succeeded by his son, A. A. Hodge, and he had another son, Caspar Wister Hodge, uh, who was a professor. And his son, Caspar Wister Hodge, also became professor. If you just look at Princeton Seminary professors, like Alexander and Alexander and Hodge and Hodge and Alexander Hodge. and <laughs> it's a, the, the family heritage, in other words, was important in the health of the Presbyterian church. That all these men, I think they had 25 children between the three of them, um, continued in the faith of their fathers, uh, often carried on uh, this heritage, uh, both in church and state and uh, society. Uh, I should mention he also, his, his wife died in 1849, uh, and he uh, married in 1852 Mary Hunter Stockman, who was a widow and a friend of his former wife and, and of the family, uh, and, and so stayed with her uh, you know, after he married her uh, his second wife. So any questions on these three men and an educated ministry, Princeton Seminary? Yes? It's a gorgeous place to visit, Princeton <laughs> uh, um, itself is beautiful, and of course the cemetery is the Westminster Abbey of the United States, and you can see Hodge, First Wife, Second Wife, because their caskets are above, and, mm-hmm. and then right down the road is from at the governor's mansion, so Yes, lovely area. And yeah, you could see like Jonathan Edwards and John Witherspoon. And I think some of you, some of you went there. Yeah, we were there last year or something like that. Um, It's, of course, Princeton College and Seminary, not the way they were. (laughs) And we'll get into that history later on in in this course, in fact, uh, with Machen and and some of the stuff that happened in the 1920s and 30s. But, um, But it was a very important uh, place Well, I guess you could still even say it was important after it declined as far as its orthodoxy was concerned, but that's that's another story. I just want to emphasize what you already said about Hodges' systematic volume, three volume set. Um, even as a layman like myself, I can go and read and understand that even though you get these sentences that are in foreign languages, you can pass... Right, them still get the sense just like you said, and even as a right, right. Very, very helpful. Right. They they are easy to read, um, like the, the language that's in English. And usually the parts that's quoted in foreign language is more to like illustrate a point that he's already made or to show that someone else already said it or, or something of that sort. But excellent resource is my point. If you don't go and just read through it. Right, right. <laughs> All right. Uh, Well, next week, uh, we'll actually... One reason I want to introduce these people is because they'll also play a role in later history that we'll look at too, such as next week, the old school, new school division in the 1830s and the issues at play there. Um, Again, many of these issues being still quite relevant for uh, for the church today. Uh, So let's go ahead and and close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your... Uh, Kindness to us and for uh, providing pastors and teachers for your church, not only presently, but uh, throughout the generations uh, who have both built up the church that exists today and whose works are still with us to to help and to minister to your church. Uh, We pray that you would uh, continue to maintain uh, your church in every age, and for the Presbyterian churches in America, that you would Continue to hold us faithful, to revive and renew, uh, to reform what is amiss, to uh, continue to conform us to your word and to proclaim it with clarity and power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.